Once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me here on this Wednesday, February 26th edition of Bang the Book Radio. My name is Adam Burke, your host for the next eh, probably 50 minutes or so, as we were all kinds of things in the world of sports from a betting focus. Happy to have you with me here as two guests join me on the program for this hump day edition of the show. The first professional handicapper, Brian Leonard from wagertalk.com. We're chat about the American League Central on today's show and take a look at tonight's card in the NBA. And in the second half of today's show, we'll chat with Wes Reynolds at Wes Reynolds and the number one on Twitter host and contributor to VEASAN. We'll talk about week four in the XFL. Take a look at the college basketball card in the Big Ten here for this week. Then finally wrap things up with the Honda Classic down in Florida. Over at bangthebook.com, we are your one-stop shop for sports betting news and information. My 2020 MLB betting guide posted over there. Season one total previews for all 30 teams. We've got that in PDF format. It's got a bunch of futures information in it as well. Really, really good piece. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but again, I think it's something that can really prepare you nicely for the upcoming Major League Baseball season as we are exactly one month away from opening day. Also over at the website, college basketball, NHL, NBA on the daily, UFC, XFL, NASCAR, all that good stuff over there on a weekly basis as well. Finally, as you know, this and every edition of Bang the Book Radio presented by our friends over at DSI Sportsbook. BTB and the number 200 is that promo code. 100% deposit match bonus for the sportsbook. 100% deposit match bonus for the live casino at BetDSI. It's only a game until you bet it. Two guests on the program here today, and we start with professional handicapper Brian Leonard from wagertalk.com. Brian, how's it going today, man? Hey, everything's going great, and uh, you mentioned your baseball preview, and uh, I've had the ability to run, to run through some of that. It's just an amazing job that you do. It's uh, in, in reality, it's, it's probably the best baseball annual that I see because it, it combines not only, the, you know, obviously the, the teams, but from a betting angle. And uh, it's something that I know a lot of people that, that I follow for baseball on Twitter um, that are really into the sport. They love it too. So congratulations once again. I know it's a ton of work for you and nobody works harder than you do, but this is something that I get excited for every year and it's just as good as ever. Well, I greatly appreciate all the kind words for that. Got to do an hour on VSIN last night, so that was a whole lot of fun. Going to do some wager talk stuff with you guys here today. Uh, there's a good chance I'll be on the Deep Dive podcast with Whale Capper next week. So, you know, nice to uh, to get the guide out there. Nice to be able to promote the fine work that everybody does over at bangthebook.com. But I know I'm looking forward to the baseball season just as much as you are here. And uh, I guess we'll go ahead and start with some baseball stuff because you're off to a nice start in spring training here. We talked about some of those things on last week's show. So kudos to you for that. Um, is there anything that, you know, you've, you've kind of picked up on here in spring training so far that maybe concerns you going into the season or maybe something that excites you going into the season? No, not as of yet. I think we're too early. Uh, A lot of the players that are playing are guys that won't be on the team um, for opening day. So um, the the concerns I would have is pretty much uh, the Yankees starting pitching at this point with everything that's going on with their injuries. Uh, But they've got so much hitting on that team and, and they'll spend the money to bring somebody in. But, uh, yeah, that's a huge blow when three of your starting pitchers that you were counting on coming into the season are already gone and you haven't even played, uh, you know, a handful of spring training games at this point. Yeah, that's the things that you want to look for there in spring training, you know, cluster injuries. I mean, they're, they're such a big deal. And, you know, now you don't have Severino. You already didn't have Paxton, who is a guy that, you know, has he's never going to be a 200-inning guy, never a poster child for good health. Domingo Herman out for the first half of the season with a suspension. Now you kind of get to the point where, you know, if a guy like Jonathan Loisiga gets hurt, or let's say that, you know, maybe now they have to accelerate the timeline for a guy like Davey Garcia. And of course, God forbid Garrett Cole get hurt. But, you know, those are things that happen here in spring training. And that's why teams need to get as much depth as possible. Not really a whole lot of free agent starters left out there looking for jobs. So definitely a situation you want to monitor there. And of course, those that have tapped into the betting guide know that the Tampa Bay Rays over 90 and a half, one of my favorite win totals, like them to win the AL East with some good value there. That price changing a little bit, of course, with those Yankees injuries. But let's talk some AL Central here as we've got the Twins looking to repeat as the division champions. The Indians hoping to get back to that level. 
Then the White Sox, a team that everybody's kind of talking about based on the pretty good offseason that they had. But let's start with last year's top team, the Minnesota Twins. What are you thinking about the Twins here for this year, Brian? Yeah, I really like the Twins, and you would think there'd be some uh, regression, um, and I think there will be from uh, some of the guys last year that had career years. But you look at the moves they made in the offseason, they've done a really nice job. Um, the starting uh, rotation beginning of the year won't be the same as it'll be later in the year. They've got a couple guys that uh, they have brought in in the offseason that uh, are going to start the year injured. Uh, but, you know, you've got Homer Bailey, who had a had a season last year where he was actually healthy. Um, I'm not a huge Homer Bailey fan, but he was healthy and he's an innings eater. And when you have an offense like the Minnesota Twins, that's really all you're looking at right now. I've always loved Rich Hill. Rich Hill is one of those guys that seems to be injured. You talked about Paxton. Rich Hill is hurt all the time. But go back and look at what Rich Hill has done when he's been on the field. He's just a tremendous pitcher. Um, and uh, they bring in Kenta Maeda. Um, it'll be interesting to go from uh, one of the weaker hitting divisions that he was in, not only because of the hitters in that division, but just because of the places that they played. Obviously, Arizona uh, using the humidor lately, and you've got the, uh, the weather in Southern California keeps the ball in the park a little bit. It'll be a little bit different um, being in this division, but it is this division in the American League, and he's not going to have to play the Yankees and, you know, the Boston offenses all the time. He gets to play the Central Division, and there's really not much offense out there other than maybe two or three guys on the Cleveland Indians that he has to worry about in this division. So uh, you got Trevor May, who I really liked coming out of the bullpen. He's really had a nice season last year. Uh, I love Taylor Rogers. He may have a little regression, but bring in uh, Sergio Romo. Uh, this is a bullpen I really think has some talent in it. And, uh, you know, just keep in mind that um, we normally talk about people look at the short-sightedness of the team, the 25-26 man team to start the season, but they're set up from a pitching standpoint where they'll have these guys coming in later on in the year. You know, they've got Pineda who's uh, suspended, but when he's on the, on the, uh, the diamond, and he's healthy. He's a good pitcher. He's somebody that can dominate at times. So I really like this this Minnesota pitching staff. And and when you take take a look at the Twins, that offense has just been terrific. Uh, some of the guys that left are big home run or strikeout guys. Um, and Minnesota's a team, considering as many home runs as they hit, they're very good at not striking out. And you know that's a pet peeve of mine is you got so many of these guys now in Toronto is one of those teams that has been that way. I think they led the led baseball in that just a few years ago and hitting home runs and striking out. Sure. It's great when you hit the home runs, but you're wasting three out of your four at bats when you strike out a lot like that. So I'm liking this Minnesota team. I think there's a lot of talent in it. Uh, Sano showed when he's healthy, he could be just as good as he was earlier. And now they bring in Josh Donaldson, who once again, he is one of those players that when he's on the field, he's great, but he has problems staying healthy. Hopefully he'll continue what he did last year. Yeah, there are a lot of things that I like about the twins. And, and obviously it's disappointing for, for me to say that as an Indians fan and same thing for you, but you know, we, we bet with money, not with our hearts here. And you know, for the twins, I mean, look, Miguel Sano last year, when he was out there, elite contact metrics, 98th, 99th percentile in terms of exit velocity and hard hit percentage. Nelson Cruz hits the ball very hard. He's usually up there in the top, you know, five spots in the leaderboard in terms of exit velocity. Josh Donaldson is another one. There's a very high correlation between offensive success and hitting the ball really hard. And the Twins have a lot of guys that hit the ball really hard. Even a guy like Mitch Garver, who hit a bunch of home runs in about a half season last year. This is a very, very deep one through nine lineup. It's the best lineup in the AL Central by a pretty large margin. So you start looking at the pitching side of things. And one of the things that I like to do, these teams that make a commitment to analytics, like the Brewers, like the Twins have now done, um, you know, like some of these teams that are out there that have just you know, hired a bunch of Ivy Leaguers and stuff like that, they find a lot of things that work on the pitching side, whether it's sequencing, whether it's pitch tunneling, whether it's just the quadrants of the zone that you throw to, these teams find ways to upgrade. And last year, 
one of the biggest areas of upgrade for the twins on the pitching side was in strikeout percentage. You saw a big jump from a guy like Jake Odorizzi. You saw a guy like Jose Barrios, who wasn't as good in the second half last year, but a strikeout percentage went up. The bullpen missed a lot more bats. You mentioned guys like Rogers at May. Tyler Duffy had a strike, a swinging strike percentage over 15%. That's what you do. You know, you just mentioned it. Teams hit for power, but teams that strike out a lot, it can hurt them negatively. If you're a pitching staff that can rack up the strikeouts, obviously that helps you in a big way. So the Twins are going to hit a lot of balls hard. I think they'll have the biggest gap between, um, you know, their hard hit percentage and opponents' hard hit percentage. There's a lot to like about this team. And quite frankly, I think their season win total in the lower 90s here it is a little bit low. This is one that's on my short list to maybe play here if we know that they're healthy through spring training. Yeah, I think uh, the Twins to win the division is pretty cheap, to be honest with you, because I'm not as high on Cleveland as some others. And uh, obviously, we take a look at the rest of the division. The White Sox are a team that'll be better. But overall, this is by far the easiest division in baseball. Uh, the Indians have lived off of that for the last you know, five, six years. And when you take a look at how teams have done, the elite teams in this division, Minnesota dominated last year. Cleveland has dominated this division in the past. If you can win your division and uh, split out with the other teams on your schedule. Now, I don't think Minnesota, you know, last year they were just amazing on the road. I think that's going to uh, make have some regression there. Uh, I don't think they're going to be nearly as good on the road. But from a home standpoint, I think they'll be better. And uh, I love the DH for this team. You mentioned uh, the DH. One of the, you know, I just love the way he approaches the at-bats. Um, he never seems to take a bad swing. He's just, you know, you, you hear the words professional hitters. Uh, he's one of them. And I, I just love that. Uh, the only thing that hurts Minnesota is when they got to go on the road and play a National League team. Uh, he can't play the field, but, you know, this team overall has got everything I'm looking for there. The one thing that makes it easy to bet on Minnesota, a lot of people still like to bet on starting pitchers. And Minnesota doesn't have those big-name starting pitchers. And you talked about uh, the strikeouts. Minnesota for years was a team that didn't strike out a lot of players. And from a betting standpoint, I like guys who could go in and strike out the opposition. And if you see, you know, if you follow the overnight line being bet up and down, usually your teams that are big strikeout pitchers uh, on the mound, they get a lot of overnight action because, you know, obviously if you're going to strike out 10 guys in a, in a nine inning game or whatever, uh, you're, you're going to have, you know, 27 batters, in, you know, with, plus the hits or whatever, you're going to have a lot of guys that you don't even have to worry about hitting the ball. And obviously, that's something that uh, we all want. We, we want. we love guys that strike out a lot of batters. And uh, Minnesota didn't have that. Now they've started incorporating that. And you had a nice write-up with the uh, pitching change, pitching, uh, pitching coach change in, your, uh, in your, your analysis of the Minnesota Twins. And that's been a, a real big uh, improvement for this team. So our Cleveland Indians. Not a not a great looking off season. You know they've got the Corey Kluber trade, which I'm fine with. I think Corey Kluber is going to be in decline. Very very high workload. Last year it was a freak injury. It wasn't you know an elbow or a shoulder or something like that. But I think Corey Kluber is in decline. I think that trade was very very overblown. And Emmanuel Class A looks like a legit back end of the bullpen reliever for the next several years as long as he stays healthy. But other than that, you know the Francisco Lindor trade talks. Mike Clevenger's name was kind of thrown about quite a bit. The Indians didn't really make any free agent signings, didn't really make any big splashes, excuse me. So when you look at the Indians here, what do you think about the prospects of this team for this season? Yeah, I'm down on the Indians here. Uh, you had so many guys that had career years last year, um, high expectations. Uh, Reyes, I, I love him as a hitter. He's he's huge. He's, he's one of those guys that, you know, in, in the uh, – in the era that we're in, he could have a check swing hit it out of the park. He's just that strong, but he still strikes out a lot. And you've got Santana that they brought in, which I thought was a nice, nice addition. He'll probably DH most of the time. He's another big strikeout guy. And you take a look at the rest of the outfield. I like Mercado. Mercado is a good all around player, but you know, they've got 
guys, they're, what I do like for the Indians is the coaching staff and uh, Terry Francona, he's, he likes to play the bench guys, which is fine as long as you've got decent bench guys. Well, they've got guys that they can rotate lefty versus righty all over this time, which I like. So you're not as dependent on certain players as a lot of teams are. But still, if Lindor and Ramirez go down, that's a major, major uh, problem with this team. Uh, Carlos Santana coming off a career year. I do love the uh, Cesar Hernandez coming in at second base because obviously, you know, Jason Kipnis is at the downside of his career, and he he just would not change his uh, his pull. Uh, he he would try to pull. Uh, what really really bothers me is when guys get pitches on the outside of the plate with a runner on first base, and instead of going with the pitch, uh, they decide to pull it and obviously hit into double plays. Uh, certain players will learn from that. Other players just continually do it. Uh, Lindor is one that did it. Uh, you take a look at the rotation. Love Clevenger. I think Bieber. His some of his stats show that he's not been as he's not as good as what he's shown. Carrasco. We still got to worry about him from a health standpoint. Um, Savali came out of nowhere. Plutko came out of nowhere. Uh, I think Allen could have a pretty good year for the Indians coming over from San Diego. Uh, please sack of her good things from him, but you go, you know, the Indians pitching staff and in the minor pitching staff has been able to turn in good performances from some of these guys. You know, Bieber was a nobody. Uh, police sacks a nobody. Savali's a nobody. These are guys that were not even listed in, you know, the top 100 prospects. You know, the, the Indians keep, uh, uh, Tristan McKenzie is the one guy who, has been listed in the top 100 prospects, but he's still not ready. He didn't have a good season last year. So these are guys that are not high, highly thought of prospects, but yet the Indians could get them out there on the field and whatever they're doing is working well. Problem is it's a short-term sample size at this point. So I don't know if we'll be able to uh, expect the same thing out of them. Now, I do love the bullpen, and you mentioned – uh, a couple of the guys in the bullpen hand just had that one section of the season last year where I don't know if he was, it was just a, an injury that he was holding back on or, or what, but on the season overall, he was tremendous. Uh, I like some of the guys that they brought in, you know, the bullpen, I think is the strength of the team. Uh, Cleveland, Cleveland been in a lot of games, but this is not the same team that they've had just a few years ago. The Indians are tough for me because, I mean, they're so top-heavy. You know, you've got two of the top 20 position players in Lindor and Ramirez, two of the top 20 starting pitchers in Clevenger and Bieber. I think Aaron Savali makes a huge leap this year. Uh, pitching whisperer Ruben Niebla, now on the Major League coaching staff. He's helped develop a lot of these kids coming up through the system. Now he's on the Major League coaching staff. So I think this is, this is one of those teams where, again, you know, they're so well-versed in analytics that, they can milk and maximize a lot of production out of their individual pieces and parts. The concern that I have, obviously, is they're very top-heavy. And you know, if they get some guys that kind of take a little bit of a leap, I think they can win this division. I, I don't think that they do, but I think that they can. I think that they can go over their season win total. Keep in mind, last year in April, they virtually didn't have Lindor or Ramirez, got off to a very slow start, still won 93 games. Now, they overachieved by a large margin relative to the alternate standings metrics, which is why I think it's fair that their win total, you know, is in that 86 and a half, 85 and a half range. But I also think that this team does have a relatively high ceiling if they stay healthy. They can ill afford another pitching injury at this point with Clevenger already off to a delayed start to the season. But this is a good team. I think that people, because of their inaction and because of some of the narratives about Lindor, I think people have kind of forgotten about this team. They're they're sort of sleeping on this team a little bit. It wouldn't shock me if the Indians are maybe a you know contender for that second wild card spot, something like that. Maybe even edge the Twins for the division. But this is a team that I'm going to try to play on early in the season because, like I said, the 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 narrative is just so low on this team right now, lower than it's been in several years. And generally, you kind of look to buy low in those types of spots. The narrative is not low on the Chicago White Sox. They are one of the winners of the offseason, and they were one of the winners of the offseason last year, and then you know won what, 72 or 73 games. Never bought into the hype train with them last year. I can't really buy into it here this year either. A good offseason, they sign the Robert, uh, the Luis Robert extension. You know, they get Dallas Keuchel. They get Yasmani Grandal. They get Edwin Encarnacion. 
they've upgraded the roster quite a bit. But with that season win total there in the 82 and a half, 83 and a half range, I just think that you know, expectations are a little too high for this team. Yeah, I think, uh, first off, I just want to touch on one last thing you mentioned about the Cleveland Indians, about getting off to a, a good start. That's the problem with Cleveland, is they have not gotten off to a good start the last few years. They seem to put it together in the second half. Uh, so that's something that the Indians need to work on. And they've actually come out and talked about that, is um, they, they want to be in a position where they're now fall behind the Twins. And then at that point, they don't have to worry about what they're going to do in the future. Like you talked about Lindor trading him during the trade deadline, something like that. But yeah, yeah, the White Sox, you take a look at the White Sox team and they have quality players pretty much across the diamond now. Uh, bringing in Grandal, the catcher, is going to be a huge addition for the White Sox. I uh, still like Encarcion. Uh, he's been able to hit wherever he's at and people keep writing him off and Speaking about writing, writing people off, uh, Breu was one of those guys that uh, late in the season come out and, and started started hitting the way he did earlier. Uh, Anderson and uh, Moncada coming off career years. And you got to like that young outfield they've got there. They bring in Mazzara, who's really never lived up to the hype for himself. But he's a he's a quality player. He's not a bad bad. I mean, he's, he's like an average player out in the field. And uh, that's better than what the White Sox have done in the past. You know, hopefully uh, Engel won't be able to get too many at-bats. I could never understand why this guy was on the major league roster. He he didn't do anything except for play some decent defense at center field. But we've got some good young players there. I like the back end of the bullpen with Colome, Bummer, and Shishak. Uh, but they've got other guys out there that have really struggled in the long relief. That's a concern for this White Sox team. And that may be the situation this year is I could see the White Sox being very competitive, but I can also see this team uh, being outscored 12 to four in certain games, just because they've, they've got some guys on, on in the rotation. Giolito, uh, Giolito's actually had a terrific year last year, but past him, you've got some questions, you know, Keuchel and Gonzalez. Uh, I like Gio Gonzalez better than a lot of people do. Keuchel, not as, not as much because, he just doesn't strike a lot of guys out, but uh, the back end of that uh, back end of the rotation, uh, Kopech's come, supposed to be coming back this year, but coming back from injury, uh, some of the other guys have questions about him. So I like the front of that rotation, but the back end is a concern for me. Yeah, that's the thing is there's there's not a whole lot of depth on the pitching side for the White Sox, and you know they've got some young guys. Aloy Jimenez showed some flashes last year, did have some injury problems. Uh, Robert that I mentioned, you know, he's a guy that has a pretty high ceiling. Nick Madrigal is a guy that gets on base a ton, doesn't hit for a whole lot of power, but, um, you know, a guy that makes a lot of contact. They they are taking a contact-based approach as much as they possibly can. And, you know, something that worked out for them last year with a guy like Tim Anderson, a guy like Yohan Moncada. Moncada, the highest batting average on balls in play since 1977 last year. So I am looking for regression out of him, looking for regression out of Anderson. I just don't think that this White Sox team has a particularly high ceiling. The under for Chicago is kind of on my short list here as far as some season win totals go. But to finish up this Central Division discussion, Brian, I know that you uh, you tend to be an underdog player. When you talk about Major League Baseball, you kind of look for those plus money prices that are out there. The Royals and the Tigers will be underdogs a lot this season. Any Any kind of any semblance of hope for those two teams? Well, when you're looking at them early in the season, because a lot of teams will, you know, basically take a look at them and, and expect to get a victory, I think there's going to be some value coming into the season on them both. Uh, but as for something that you can rest your head on for the season, I, I'm not there. Um, I think Detroit is going to be a little bit better than uh, what people think, uh, only because later on during the season, I'll start, start bringing up some of their minor leaguers and because of the trades that they have made and brought in, they, they do, they are a little bit better set um, than they were just a few years ago. Uh, you talked about that in your preview is how they would sign a lot of veterans and it took away uh, a lot of their guys in the minors that had some quality. But now when you take a look at maybe the top 200 minor leaguers, Detroit has got some players that are out there that could surprise. So uh, Kansas city, is a team that I don't think the future is going to be as bright. Um, I, Kansas City's probably going to win more games than Detroit this year, but it wouldn't surprise me after that 
that Detroit for the next five years has more victories than what Kansas City does. Uh, Kansas City's that they've had good coaching over over the past few years. It's a pretty good organization. You got you got to say for the, for the payroll that they've had to to be as competitive as they were and to to win the World Series. You don't see that very often. Um, so I got to take my hat off for the Royals in the past. But uh, you know they, they got some decent players this year that had career years last year. They did bring in Franco from Philadelphia, play third base, um, a big strikeout you know, home run kind of guy, but I think that'll help him. But you got a couple other guys and Hunter Dozier. I didn't think much of it. He'd done nothing in the uh, minors. He was, he was highly thought of originally. And then you bring in Solaire who really everything he did last year, I think is truthful. I mean, you take a look at his hard hit rate, his barrel rate. Uh, that's a guy that I liked even when he played for the Cubs and he, he people had forgot about him. So he, he's really, the big bat in this lineup, obviously Merrifield is a guy who gets on base. Uh, he didn't try to steal as much last year. Maybe his legs are, are a problem. He's not, he doesn't have that ability to steal, which is really what he's known for. So that's a concern uh, from a pitching standpoint. Really nobody on this team <clears throat> is somebody who I, who I think is somebody I'm looking to back. I think Keller's probably the best of the bunch. You know, I've, Junis is one of those guys that he can put out a great performance and then he gets lit up the next time because he gives up a lot of home runs. Uh, the bullpen, I like the bullpen for this team, although I'll be honest with you, I still don't think Ian Kennedy is a closer. Hopefully they can he'll get off to a nice start and they can trade him and and I put Barlow in a closer or one of those younger guys. I always liked Hill uh, back in his younger days, but uh, this is a team that, you know, they're not going to win a lot of games. And I liked your analysis on uh, Perez, the catcher, who didn't play last year. And he at one time was the face of this franchise. Um, really good information you had there. You might want to talk a little bit about that. But uh, the Royals are, are a concern for me. I think we can make some money going against the Royals. The only problem is, as I talked about earlier, a lot of people like the best starting pitchers. And really, Kansas City doesn't have a name out there that you like to like to have uh, as a starting pitcher. They're one of those teams that they're not really a name rotation, and I'm not overly impressed. Yeah, one of the things that I like to do, one of the reasons I like analytics so much is that, you know, we get a lot of different ways of valuing players. And, and with Salvador Perez, people think this guy is good. You know, he's a catcher that hits 25 home runs, and, you know, he's able to throw out base runners. He's one of the worst framing catchers in Major League Baseball. He's a very low on-base percentage guy. It's always interesting to me when there's this massive disconnect between how a player is publicly viewed and how he's viewed from a metric standpoint. And Perez, maybe one of the most polarizing guys in baseball because people think he's good. He's not good, and he won't help this pitching staff out either. Not really keen on the Royals here uh, for this season at all. Like you mentioned, Detroit's got some young guys like a Casey Mize, like a Matt Manning. Matt Manning, a top 30 Major League Baseball prospect. He'll be coming up here in the second half of the year. Big ballpark at Comerica. So I'll look to play some unders with the Tigers probably uh, later on this season when they trade away some of those veteran bats and bring up some of those young arms. But as far as a season-long standpoint goes, not going to be too invested in that one. I will talk AL West tomorrow on the betters box for our regular listeners out there. So make sure you tune in for that. And, of course, uh, you know, Brian's referenced the guide a few times. I'm going to pat myself on the back about it a little bit here as much as I can on the show. Uh, good information in that over at bangthebook.com with the PDF and then also with the individual article pages. Brian, we transition to the NBA here for a couple of minutes, just taking a look at tonight's card, taking a look at the league in general. Um, you know, just kind of business as usual now during the uh, the stretch run towards the playoffs with the league wrapping up here in what about six or seven weeks for the regular season i think anything on your mind for tonight anything you've kind of picked up on in general yeah i'm still looking over the card but i i do have a little bit of interest in the cleveland cavaliers tonight uh joel ambeck coming off that huge game last time out but you take a look at cleveland the way they are situated right now from a the strength of the team is in the front court uh they've got a whole team, basically five guys now that could play anywhere from small, picking out between them anywhere from small forward to uh, center that are good defensive, good rebounding players. 
And uh, since they made the the trade with Detroit, with bringing in the uh, the center there, I think Embed, you know, I believe he had that 48 points or some some crazy amount his last time out. I think he's going to come into this game thinking, okay, now I'm going to come out and really take it to him. But Cleveland's got four guys that they can throw up against him to take some fouls and keep him out of the paint. Um, obviously, uh, Philadelphia's second best player is injured. Uh, he's not going to be playing tonight. Uh, so Cleveland, I think, has some advantages. That big comeback against Miami really uh, brought this team into a positive frame of mind here. I believe they won four of the last five games. They're playing really good ball right now for Cleveland. And uh, I think the line's a little bit high here considering the, the matchups in this game. Uh, the guard play's been a little bit better for Cleveland lately. Uh, Garland's a guy that, you know, the brass loves, but he hasn't had many assists. Well, over the last 10 days, 10 games, 14 games, he's actually starting to pile up the assists. So he's starting to get in the feel of being a point guard in this league. And, and when you've got big men that can, you know, the pick and roll, that kind of thing, um, that's really what Cleveland is looking to play on right now. Seven and a half looks kind of high for me. I'll probably be on the Cavaliers tonight. Well, and this is one of those things. It's kind of that time of the year, too, where we start looking at some of the coaching dynamics. You know, the the Cavs didn't seem to like John Beeline. Maybe John Beeline just not necessarily a fit for the NBA, maybe more of a you know college head coach, and I'm sure he goes back that route. But now you've got some questions where you've got teams maybe playing for a lame duck head coach, maybe trying to save a head coach something like that. And obviously here we see with the Cavs with Bickerstaff taking over and beeline stepping down, they're playing a different brand of basketball. They seem to be a lot more comfortable, seem to be a lot more excited to go to work every day. And we're seeing the impact that that has on the results. So again, as always, you know, I think the NBA just so much of a situationally based league, so much based on, you know, kind of the, the newsworthy tidbits, the things that are going on. But now that we've got about six or seven weeks left in the regular season, those coaching dynamics could kind of come into play a little bit more. Yeah, they definitely can, and um, as opposed to uh, football where, you know, you, you've got all week long to handicap, in basketball, you find a team, if, especially if you're watching the games, you, you can see a team is improving. You look at the stat sheet, uh, so, you know, it takes like two or three games, and all of a sudden nobody's paying attention, and you could ride one of these teams for a week and, uh, and until somebody else catches up with it, and you can get some nice advantages and there's so many teams, and it's just the way the NBA is. Uh, even bad teams like Cleveland, this is the second time this year that they've gotten off to a, a decent type of play and been able to run off, you know, four out of five or something like that where they are playing better. And, and most people are just look, looking past them um, and looking at the teams that are fighting for the playoffs. So uh, we talked about in the past about how Cleveland does in games that, you know, they're home against a team like the Knicks or – or Atlanta, and it's continued on. They continue to struggle against those teams. But the better teams, the Cavs have actually played pretty well against the better teams in this league. So it's something about that that uh, you're able, you're not going to win the game, but if you're getting enough points, they're worthy of a wager. And that's the way we've been able to play the Cavaliers this year. Brian Leonard, professional handicapper over at wagertalk.com. Brian, what's going on over at the website right now, man? Yeah, we've got a couple of guests I respect coming in to do videos today. Uh, we're going to talk about baseball. We're going to talk about the NCAA tournament, what you should look for, uh, how to play the conference tournaments. And uh, yeah, a lot of basically how-to videos today and uh, something to keep up on the site. We've got, you know, obviously with uh, each state now taking a look at uh, gambling and sports handicapping, we've got a lot of new people to the industry and uh, something that wasn't there when you and I started out in this industry is you can get people who gamble for a living and guys who uh, have done it for years can give you a little bit of tips. And that's what we're doing today, a lot of those. So in the next couple of weeks, look out for a lot more. We did it last week. I think we did 14 videos. I think we're doing 18 this week. But uh, something to keep your eye on and uh, get different people's opinions on what they look for to uh, make money in this business. Brian Leonard, once again, professional handicapper over at wagertalk.com at B Leonard Sports on Twitter. Brian, appreciate the time as always, man. Thank you so much for joining me, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds terrific. Everybody have a good week. There you go. There's Brian Leonard, once again, professional handicapper over at wagertalk.com at B Leonard Sports on Twitter.
We got one more guest, one more segment here for this February 26th edition of the show. That is with Wes Reynolds at Wes Reynolds and the number one on Twitter, regular contributor to VSIN and the Point Spread Weekly newsletter. Wes, how's it going today, man? Well, good, Adam. How are you doing, sir? Doing very well, buddy. It's uh, good to chat with you here. I was on your show last night. You're on my show here this morning. So, once again, thank you to you, Kelly, Brady. Great time last night on VSIN. Hopefully, a lot of our listeners got a chance to check that out. Um, is there an archive version of the show where if they miss the segment, they can get it uh, on our show? Not as much because it's 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 the evergreen show because we're doing live stuff. Uh, I will try to see if we can get that up at vcin.com for an interview. Uh, we should should be able to usually the full show because it's uh, oftentimes we're doing live stuff where we're updating scores in progress. So obviously that becomes stale <laughs> once once it's actually happened. but. Yeah, I will try to see if I can get that segment and uh, find that way to the website because I think people would really enjoy listening to it. And then, uh, obviously, uh, your MLB betting guide that you have put out, and uh, you were gracious enough to uh, get me an advanced copy of that. And I got to tell you, from from somebody that does a lot of different sports and uh, dabbles in a little bit of everything, that's going to save people a lot of work in terms of uh, – devoting the time to this i know baseball is kind of your first betting love so you know definitely check out your guide man because it, it will save you a lot of time and i think it gives you such a good base without getting like overly knee deep in the weeds here but i think it gives you a good base of knowledge going forward well no i really appreciate that and uh, if you can't get the show up everyone's just gonna have to take my word for it that it was the best segment ever on vsin uh, no, but seriously we had a good time with it uh, once again, thank you to you, Brady and, and Kelly, for making that happen last night. And let's talk a very different market here, the XFL for week four. We've got three data points now for all these teams, and I still feel like I don't really know any of them particularly well. We start here on Saturday with the first game, the Los Angeles Wildcats, seven and a half point favorites against the New York Guardians, who you know, at this point, I think the Guardians have kind of cemented themselves as the worst team in this league. Yeah, before we get to the individual game, you were saying uh, even though we have three data points that you still feel like you don't know, it's the bookmakers that don't know either because uh, we talked with Chuck Esposito at, at uh, Sunset Station uh, uh, out in Henderson uh, the other night, and he was talking about the XFL, and he's like, look, there's still a lot I don't know here in terms of uh, what kind of action we're really seeing where they haven't figured out, okay, yeah, is it the sharps betting it or is it the public betting it? It's a little bit of both, I guess. So, uh, you know, that's what you're seeing with these numbers. And look, uh, maybe it takes even over a season because the algorithms are going to be completely different, especially if you're doing in running wagering, which most and pretty much every Vegas book is not doing that. There's a couple, uh, I think FanDuel and points bet in New Jersey and in some other jurisdictions are dabbling a little bit with that in running wagering because of the fact that there's not a lot of key numbers per se, simply because you have a lot of oddball scores with this uh, point after where you can go for one, two or three points. So you don't get those traditional scores on three and seven, but uh, yeah, for this first game, uh, and I took the Wildcats last week. This was these were two teams I actually split on. Uh, took the Guardians uh, once they got to double digits, and they were never in the game. And then took the Wildcats as underdogs, and they were never losing the game to uh, to DC. Uh, I think LA is a little bit of a better team. That line looks a little rich just on the road because uh, uh, we, we they have that one game on the road where they got blown out at Houston. So. It seems like it's a little bit of an over-adjustment, but in terms of New York, look, they, they looked pitiful on offense for two weeks in a row. Uh, Matt McGloin eventually, uh, uh, once the game got out of hand, they took him out and put Luis Perez in, uh, who played uh, for Arizona in the now-defunct AAF, Alliance of American Football, the week before, and he did lead them to their only touchdown, so... We won't know probably until late in the week, maybe Friday, uh, who's going to end up getting a start for this team. Uh, the principal thinks that maybe this line is a little bit of an over-adjustment, but, man, I, I really don't want the Guardians. Uh, they, they honestly, even though they've won a game, have looked like the worst team. 
Well, and this is one of those things, too, where another thing that throws a wrinkle into this league, you know, you, you look at that win for the Wildcats last week. They win by 30, but, you know, they had the four interceptions from Cardale Jones. They only outgained D.C. by 54 yards. They only had one more first down. And, and we're getting a lot of this because the league is very inconsistent. The quarterback play is extremely inconsistent. So you have some games where you know, the final score tells a different story than the box score. And obviously, if you get eyes on this product, too, you know, it may look a little bit different in that regard as well. So, you know, L.A., that big win last week, but, you know, it wasn't really the type of game that the final score would suggest. It's not like they moved it up and down on the D.C. defense all day long. Do you lay seven and a half here with that long cross-country trip? I don't know. I mean, this is a game to me. I think this one's a complete stay away. You've got a low total on this one of 39 as well. I just This is a game I just I don't really have a great pulse for the league in general, but especially this game. Yeah, and then looking at some of the injuries, uh, Josh Johnson, uh, quarterback for L.A., limited a little bit in practice. It looks like uh, uh, their receiver, Nelson Spruce, who really was probably – their more consistent offensive weapon in the passing game the first couple of weeks. Uh, it's looking like as of now, he's not, he's not going to go. So uh, yeah, injury information, uh, you really got to search a little bit for in terms of uh, who's going to play and, and who's going, who's going to be sitting out. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I mean, if I had to, I'd probably take New York just on the basis of that this, Line has gone up a, l- a little bit, and uh, you play against the recency bias. But this one, this may be one I either in game or just stay out of altogether. Yeah, and I think I saw this morning too that Trey McBride is also questionable for LA. So that would be the top two receiving weapons for Josh Johnson. Maybe at that point, the under becomes a play, but obviously, here with 39, very low total in that one. How about the Dragons and the Battle Hawks here? You've got the Battle Hawks, a 12 point favorite against Seattle. Total on this game, 38 and a half. So a pretty low number here for this one. Jordan Tamu has been great here throughout the course of the XFL season. Didn't have to do a whole lot last week, but you know they're still able to get the victory there. And, and they're laying a very healthy number here in this one. Yeah, you talk about an adjustment uh, here. Uh, this uh, St. Louis Battlehawks team, uh, in week one, they were taking almost 10. I think it closed maybe nine, nine and a half in Dallas and they get an out, outright win. And I know there's been uh, two games played after that, but <clears throat> that's over a three touchdown adjustment in just three weeks in their line. And I, I can't necessarily argue with it because look, the battle Hawks were the lowest priced team. When you looked at the preseason in terms of the uh, XFL, simply because I believe they had the only head coach in the league or, or maybe uh Winston Moss had been an assistant head coach, uh, but they had pretty much one of the uh, only head coaches in the league that had never been a head coach, that being Jonathan Hayes, who was the tight end coach for the Cincinnati Bengals with Marvin Lewis for about 15 years. So they were the the, the least known commodity. But this team has been the best, best running team in the XFL uh, pretty much all season. And uh, look up. Uh, in this league, even though it's pass, 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 and you want to increase the scoring, and we've kind of seen that across all levels of football, where it seems like the running game is kind of, uh, has kind of gone out with platform shoes, if you will, the running game is still important. And the teams that are able to keep defenses honest and run the ball are the teams that win games. And, and having Jordan Tambu, uh, who's been kind of a threat not only through the air, but especially running the football, they've been able to do that. Uh, kind of a brave new world here, even though we had the Battle Hawks uh, lane 10 last week, and they easily covered against New York. So you see a little bit of the ad- adjustment upwards. Uh, Seattle was in the game with Dallas, and then Dallas kind of uh, did what they did to L.A. Uh, the week before, where – they wore them out in the second half with the running game. They still were able to throw the ball down the, the field with Landry Jones, but they were able to get Cameron Arskane and Lance Dunbar going and wore L.A. out. And then uh, St. Louis kind of does the same thing with their running game. This is one where I, I guess I'm kind of looking a little bit towards the over here. You know, I think Brandon Silver's looked a lot better last week, certainly a little bit healthier than he was in that week two start. And, you know, the Guardians did move the football a little bit on this Battlehawks team last week. Um, or, you know, it's one of those things where for the Guardians. I mean, look, 
you know, they've got Matt McGloin. They've got some guys that have some upside, maybe more upside than what's there for Seattle. But, you know, this is a Guardians team that last week had 5.6 yards per play. So they were able to move it to a degree anyway. So I, I think the over is probably the way I'd look here, especially with that low total, 38 and a half. I, I know that obviously you've got a Battle Hawks team that does run it quite a bit. But they do move it in chunks when they run it. And they are, they're getting some positive plays. They're staying ahead of the chains. Maybe this one gets some points for us there on Saturday. Yeah, and just as kind of a general rule, uh, I might be wanting to, to start look at, looking at more overs than unders because we have seen, uh, obviously, in terms of uh, week three, uh, I believe uh, with, uh, what is it, uh, 12 games played, it's like uh, – eight and four to the under it was two two for two last week so we started to see the scoring pick up at least a little bit in spots and and i think you're gonna see that now i mean look the openers they didn't know what to do with them because they didn't have any data so they put them out 40 and a half betters bet them over into the 50s they bet them up too high over adjustment and then the unders came in the second week in a row so now all of a sudden those totals got pushed into kind of the, on average, the mid 40 range. So uh, now kind of where they are and you're seeing them even uh, in the high 30s, uh, just below uh, 40 in a couple of these games. Now is where I think you might get some pushback here on the overs, just by and large going forward. So we moved to Sunday here for the Lone Star State battle, Houston and Dallas. And Wes, I got to say, if you would have told me Going into the first season here of the XFL, that Landry Jones would be a home underdog in any situation, I probably would have laughed at you, but that is the case here this week. Houston favored by two on the road at Dallas. And Landry Jones, look, uh, you've kind of seen uh, the best and the worst of him a little bit in this league. Uh, uh, he looked like uh, he's been enjoying some uh, water burgers down there in Texas. Uh, you know, maybe not in the greatest physical shape, but. He can throw the ball down the field. I mean, he's thrown a few dimes in, in these first two games. And uh, obviously with the, the air raid offense that uh, Hal Mummy and Bob Stoops are kind of running together here, they're throwing the ball very well down the field. Now, he does, I believe, have four interceptions in, in his two starts. He did not go in week one, mind you, against St. Louis, a home loss there. But he's thrown a, two interceptions in back-to-back games, only two, three touchdowns, and 73% completion, 274 yards. And then Dallas did the same thing last week at Seattle that they did at LA the week before, which has got the running game going a little bit in the second half. And I think that that ended up being the difference in the game. But I want to take Dallas here, but I want a little bit more. I, I would like, uh, even though they're not as defined of a key number as you would get even in college football and, and more in the NFL, I would like to get three if I possibly can. Uh, Roughnecks, uh, clearly through three weeks, look like the best team in the XFL. Uh, uh, they went punch for punch, and credit Tampa Bay, they went punch for punch with them. And Houston found a way at the end and uh, got that big uh, interception, that big turnover from uh, Taylor Fornelius to basically salt away the game. But Houston, I think, has probably looked the most ready to play, where I think uh, – combination of players and coaching with June Jones uh, have really kind of gotten this league, I think, quicker than a lot of their competitors in the league. So uh, Houston's clearly the best team. I want to take Dallas, but I do want to wait and see if I can get a little bit more. Yeah, and, and maybe if you're lucky enough to have a book that offers the derivative options here, you know, Houston first half, Dallas second half, something like that does make some sense here. I mean, Dallas you know, scored on four of their five possessions last week. And like you said, they were kind of able to put that game away. You know, for Houston, 7.9 yards per play last week. And, you know, when you look at that performance against the Vipers, it, it looks like it was a closer game than it actually was because Tampa Bay ran 23 more plays. So, you know, it's not like Houston's defense was great in that game necessarily, but they were out there for a much heavier workload because the offense just you know, moved it in such explosive fashion that, you know, Tampa Bay was able to run a lot more plays. So, Interesting game, you know, maybe um, a game that we'll see again down the line here for uh, maybe a little bit more. But, you know, again, it's one of those situations where I think you know, you've got a Houston team that's looked so good, a Dallas team that a lot of people thought had the most upside coming into the year. 
maybe it is a spot to take the dog. But like I said, I think I think first half Houston, second half Dallas, if you're lucky enough to have that opportunity. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that option. All right, one more game to talk about here in the XFL. And uh, can't really say too much about this one because we don't have a line for it right now because we're not sure what's going to happen with the Vipers quarterback situation and Aaron Murray. It was a report that Aaron Murray would come back from that shoulder injury. Mark Tressman responded to that report and said that it didn't come from him. He didn't know what they were talking about. So this one between D.C. and Tampa Bay looks like it's pretty much off the board across the market. Yeah, uh, uh, Aaron Murray, it has come out that he is at least taking first-team reps in practice today. Uh, Quentin Flowers, by the way, not practicing uh, for the uh, Tampa Bay Vipers. Uh, But, uh, look, I thought uh, uh, Taylor Cornelius, I mean, he hasn't, he wasn't great. But I didn't think he was bad. It looked like uh, that they were going to go with Quentin Flowers in the second half, but they went ahead and kept Taylor Cornelius. It proved to uh, be the right decision as as he led them down the field. Uh, did have that interception late, which uh, pretty much uh, took Tampa Bay out of contention. But Cornelius was able to run the ball a little bit uh, because Quentin Flowers, I think, I would think was their best option from an RPO standpoint. Where it's not really a luxury. I think it's almost becoming a necessity in this league. And uh, Ben Kercheval of uh, CBS Sports, who covers the XFL, uh, kind of agreed with that assessment that, look, this is a league, I think, conducive to a quarterback that's able that's able to run and not just be your traditional pocket passer. And uh, Taylor Cornelius showed that he could do that a little bit last week against Houston. Uh and also ran for a touchdown, much like Quentin Flowers also did. But they used Flowers a lot in both, and maybe or mostly really the second quarter. And then they went with Cornelius the entire second half. And look, uh, Tampa Bay did go punch for punch with Houston. And I think in the situation, just on the sense of urgency being 0-3, if you lose this game, you are pretty much done because the top two teams – in the two respective conferences or what are going to be your playoff teams, uh, uh, four playoff teams here. So, you know, if you're Tampa Bay, you can't go 0-4 and, and probably have any chance to make the playoffs. But the quarterback situation is a mystery. I didn't like what I saw out of Aaron Murray in week one. I thought he left points off the board. He made two turnovers in the red zone. Now that's just one game. Maybe you give him another shot here. So, I have to trust that coaching staff down there that uh, that they're going to KYP know their personnel before uh, better than all of us will. But Aaron Murray didn't really dazzle me in week one. Getting today's show out just a little bit late here. So as we transition over to the college basketball side, got a couple of games in the Big Ten tonight, but I just want to focus on the late one here between Maryland and Minnesota. I wrote up a preview for this game over at bangthebook.com so you get my thoughts Uh, over in that piece but you know Wes at this time of the year in college basketball it's always interesting to read the market I know you were talking about this game last night on Beeson the NC State North Carolina game North Carolina 3 and 13 in conference play short favorite over an NC State team with everything to gain from its NCAA tournament hopes and North Carolina wins that game tonight you've got a 500 Minnesota team in a coin flip game against the top team in the Big Ten at least from a conference record standpoint, in Maryland. This is another one of those lines that kind of smells a little fishy. Yeah, uh, and uh, we talked uh, on the Green Zone not only on Sunday but on Monday or about that uh, last night's uh, North Carolina State and North Carolina game, and I'll kind of compare it to this one where uh, this is the – this is the stinky line, and I ended up being on North Carolina, and I said, look, uh, NC State, one of the last four in, and if you believe in all the bracketologies, and yet they're getting points at a North Carolina team that have lost seven in a row, this stinks to high heaven, but sometimes you got to go where the stink is. I mean, this stink here might be stank, if you want to call it that, with uh, Maryland and, and Minnesota, because uh, you got a Minnesota team that is 500. Uh, overall, 13 and 13 uh, would not be in the NCAA tournament today, but because they're in the Big Ten, uh, and you'll hear this often, you get a lot of opportunities in terms in terms of getting wins and maybe getting you on the right side of the bubble. Now, I think Minnesota would probably have to win out and at least win a game in the Big Ten tournament in Indianapolis uh, to even have a sniff of that. But 
you got a Maryland team that uh, 22 and five. I know they lost at Ohio State on Sunday, but this is a team that I think pretty much consensus would be on the two line in terms of being an NCAA tournament seed. Uh, probably getting a number one for the Big Ten is a little bit out of the question this year. But as these teams lose, you never know. But Maryland, I think, would be a, at least a solid two, maybe a three at this point. And yet, and yet it's a pick them, and even in some spots they're getting a point. So maybe this is the Gophers' last stand here here in this game, where it's like they're sitting on a good effort, and you know we'll see if they have stayed with the season going forward and haven't gotten too discouraged being 500 at this point uh, overall, and uh, and probably would be I think they'd be about an 11 or a 12 seed in the Big Ten tournament uh, going to Indianapolis, but. I don't know. Maybe the odds maker is telling us that they think Minnesota's got a shot here. Yeah, and you know, as I as I compared these two teams side by side for the article, I mean, they're, they're very similar. You know, neither yes. one of these teams shoots it very well. Neither one of these teams forces a lot of turnovers on defense. Their adjusted offensive efficiency numbers over at places like Torvik and Ken Palm are by and large because they take care of the basketball on offense and they play a good schedule. I mean, if you look at these two teams statistically. They are not that much different. It's just that Maryland's got a lot more wins, you know, and then maybe they just have the higher upside. Maybe they're just a little bit more consistent of a team. But I think this line kind of speaks to the fact that the statistical profiles of these two teams are not that far apart, but their records are. And again, this is a line that definitely caught my eye as I was looking at it. And this won't be the last game like this over the last couple of weeks of the regular season. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't think so. And, uh, uh, to, to I mean to look at this and to say that oh clearly Maryland's better because you look at that record, but they are fair they are fairly similar statistically. I think Minnesota is a little bit better than this thirteen and thirteen record. I think uh, they've had some close losses this year, so they haven't exactly had a lot of a lot of uh, luck in that regard. And and if you look at them in terms of the power ratings. Most people would probably have them as a top, you know, 40 team at least, uh, even though they're 500. Uh, so, look, the Big Ten's uh, a tough league this year. Minnesota got off to a tough start uh, in the uh, non-conference season, started out three and four. None of them were really bad losses, though. So uh, I'm going to lean with the Gophers here, but I got to look at this a little more. Yeah, I took Maryland, I think, but... You know, it's it's not one that I had a bet on. I just thought it was a really interesting game to wind up talking about, you know, much like we did here uh, on today's show. But one more item of business, Wes, and that is the PGA Tour as the California swing is over. Now we go out to Florida at PGA National for the Honda Classic. Not an awesome field here, a decent field. Fleetwood, your favorite, Kepka Fowler, who's won this before. Uh, you've got Louis Oosthuizen, Billy Horschel's in pretty good form, Gary Woodland. Justin Rose, guys like that. First and foremost, tell us about this course and, and what you're kind of looking for in terms of the players that you took. Yeah, this is an okay field, but uh, the if you looked at advance to uh, next week, the field at Bay Hill is much better and uh, much more stacked. Uh, and I just think that this event may suffer a little bit in the fact that you have such a condensed schedule now in the Florida Sling with the Players' Championship being moved back to March with the PGA now being held in May instead of in uh, July or early August. So uh, this is it was an interesting field in the fact that the three shortest-priced guys, the three favorites on the board, Tommy Fleetwood, Brooks Kepka, Ricky Fowler, have all had tournaments where they've played well here. Ricky Fowler, in fact, won it a couple years ago, and uh, he and Brooks Kepka were uh, co-runner-ups last year. But this looked like a week where you could take a stand against the favorites, uh, which I'm going to do more often than not, but especially this week. You just don't have the form with these guys. Uh, this is a, a PGA National Champions course in uh, Paul Beach Gardens, Florida. Uh, Jack Nicholas uh, did the redesign. It's a 7,100-yard par 70, but it's actually the toughest par 70 on the tour. And if you look at the difficulty rank, four of the last five years, it's been one of the top five most difficult courses on tour. There were only four courses and four events that had tougher courses last year. Beth Page Black at the PGA, Pebble Beach at the U.S. Open, 
Sheshan, which is over in China the, for the WGC, HSBC, a lot of letters and abbreviations there, champions, and Royal Portrush at the Open Championship. Those were the only more difficult courses than this one last year. So uh, you rarely see the average winning score since they moved this event over here back in 2007. The average winning score is minus 8.8 under par. So you are going to more than likely have single digits uh, under par win this event. So when you get a course like that, I mean, do you do you sort of, you know, take a look at the best of the best? Do you look at the ball strikers or do you sort of, you know, kind of maybe look for guys that, you know, maybe are a little bit higher variance to where maybe, you know, they come out here and play really well in this one? Are you looking for putters? What are you kind of looking for? It's a little bit of a crapshoot in this event. I mean, I think uh, you got to look for guys to keep the ball in play. You, you know, uh, accuracy usually is not as the most important from week to week, but you got to look for guys that are going to keep the ball in the fairway. You got to look for guys, greens and regulation, uh, just a good solid tee to green game. Uh, they started doing this strokes gained uh, measurement metrics about four seasons ago. So that's all the day data we have, but of the last four winners in this event, uh, they've ranked and I'll go uh, from uh, 2019 backwards first, first, 10th and third and T to green for that particular week in strokes gained T to green. So, you know, you want guys that are going to be able to, uh, to avoid bogeys. There's a lot of holes here where you basically are playing for par and that's the best that you're going to get. And you know what? You'll take 15 or 16 pars and see if you can shoot two under par. If you shoot four sixty eights, basically, which is two under par each round, eight under on a Sunday, you're going to be right in the mix to win the thing. So, you know, that's that. Those are the guys I think you're looking for. So who are those guys that are on your list this week? Yeah, I went with a couple guys kind of in the mid 20 to 30 range to start off. Uh, Gary Woodland and Billy Horschel. Uh, Gary Woodland leads the field, actually, in ball striking. And the way the PGA Tour measures the ball striking is uh, greens and regulation combined with total driving. So Woodland is a guy, uh, comes back to Florida, hasn't won since the uh, U.S. Open, but has played solid, hitting the ball really well. Billy Horschel, I actually got in the mid-30s, and now he's down to like about 25. Uh, Back-to-back top 10s from Phoenix last week or two weeks, a couple weeks ago, and then at the WGC Mexico. So he's playing solid. Uh, Shane Lowry, uh, you'll get a few, you a lot of the Europeans now are coming over as you're getting to the Florida swing. And as we're about a month out from the masters, uh, Shane Lowry, I got a 45 to one doesn't have much of a record here at this course, but if the wind starts blowing, he's a pretty good player in windy conditions, as we saw in rural at rural port rush last year for the open championship. Uh, Fourth in this week's field in terms of bogey avoidance. So this is a guy that that plays this kind of grinder game where he's able to grind out pars. I think uh, he's certainly a guy to look at. Uh, I came down to a couple of Georgia Bulldogs uh, in that 70 to one range. Uh, Harris English or Russell Henley, a former winner here. Harris English is who I went with. Second on the tour in, PG, in uh, greens and regulation. First in bogey avoidance. Fifth in ball striking back on the Bermuda green. So a lot of these guys uh, like this Florida swing because they get on that Bermuda that they putted on all their life. Uh, Corey Connors, same guy, 75 to one, uh, one of the better ball strikers on tour, not a great putter, but he's less bad, I guess, if you want to say on, uh, on Bermuda green. So he's a guy I looked at. And then a couple uh longer shots, uh, Matt Nesmith, uh, 100 to 1, who won the Corn Ferry Tour Finals last fall to earn his PGA Tour card, now made seven straight cuts, and he's had his back-to-back uh, events, his best two finishes on his short career on the PGA Tour, tied for 11th at Pebble, tied for six last week in Puerto Rico, and then Doc Redman, 225 to 1. Maybe he'll be like Keith Mitchell was for me last year, who uh, who eventually got home and held up. Uh, off Brooks captain Ricky Fowler, and he's at about the same price, 225 to one. Really accurate driver, really good ball striker, greens and regulation. So it is a little bit of a crapshoot this week in terms of putting together a staking plan. But uh, that was basically by default what I did is just 
getting accurate drivers and guys that put it in the fairway and guys that can reach the greens. Always great to chat with Wes Reynolds here on the show at Wes Reynolds of the number one on Twitter. Wes, as I mentioned, regular contributor to VEASAN and that Point Spread Weekly newsletter. Uh, when can people find your work? Okay, uh, Friday night, be back on the air from uh, 6 to 10 Pacific. And then uh, over the weekend, I do uh, some XFL BetCast stuff, which you can go to VEASAN.com for more information on that. And then uh, Green Zone, uh, Monday and Tuesday from 6 to 10 uh, Pacific. Uh, Sunday, we'll also be on that particular program from three to seven Pacific. And then our show, our golf show, Long Shots, uh, uh, came back last month. So we air that from five to six Pacific time where we, Brady and Cannon and I break down the uh, PGA Tour events, even maybe do a little European tour and uh, basically talk uh, an hour of golf on VSIN. Well, there you go. Make sure you check all that out. And of course, like I said, make sure you follow Wes on Twitter at Wes Reynolds and the number one Wes, appreciate your time as always, man. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll talk to you again next week. You got it, Adam. Thanks for having me as always. There you go. There's Wes Reynolds. Once again, at Wes Reynolds is the number one on Twitter. You can find him on VEASAN and in that Point Spread Weekly newsletter. Coming up on our Thursday edition of Bang the Book Radio, I'll do the betters box to start things off. We'll talk some AL West. Do my five and fly segment, five minutes on every team there in that division. Do some injury updates for spring training as well. Then we'll talk Big Ten and Big East basketball with John Ryan at John Ryan Sports at the number one on Twitter, contributor over at bangthebook.com. I'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.